Welcome to the third season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. This episode takes place in the late 1970s, an era that was the birthplace of some of TV's greatest shows and rock music. Paul Snyder grew up in Vancouver, British Columbia, a city situated on the west coast with the Pacific Ocean at its doorstep. But Paul didn't live in any of the swanky neighborhoods. Instead, he grew up on the east side, an area with more than its fair share of crime and poverty. Paul's parents split up when he was young, and he quit school in the seventh grade. Entering his teens, he was embarrassed about his looks. Tall and scrawny, he began lifting weights to bulk up. His dark hair was cut short, and he sported a thin mustache that tipped down slightly at the outer edges. Paul yearned for success and money, but no matter how hard he tried, the big score eluded him. The Village Voice reported that for a time he did well promoting car shows and could be seen dressed in a fur coat with gaudy chains hanging around his neck and driving a black Corvette. But being a promoter wasn't enough to provide him with a lifestyle that he dreamed of. Paul stayed away from the drug scene. He was deathly afraid of doing time and going to jail. But he did borrow money from loan sharks, and at one point when he lost a lot of money, his life was threatened and he fled to Los Angeles. There he purchased a gold limousine and became a pimp. But the girls he hired weren't providing him with much money, and in 1977 he returned to Vancouver. Also growing up in Vancouver was Dorothy Hoogstratton, the daughter of Dutch immigrants. Her parents were divorced when she was young, and in her teens to help out her mother, Dorothy worked at the Dairy Queen. By 18, Dorothy had grown into a stunning young woman, tall and slender, with long blonde hair feathered back. One evening in 1978, Paul and a friend stopped at Terry Queen. Behind the counter, Dorothy took Paul's breath away. He turned to his friend and said, That girl could make me a lot of money. He approached one of the workers and got Dorothy's phone number. Paul made Dorothy feel special. At 26, he was nine years older than her and seemed so worldly. He swooped in and took charge, something she lacked with her father gone. Paul began grooming her, bought her nice clothes and jewelry, and took her to his posh apartment. He served her wine and dinner, and afterwards serenaded her with his guitar. Paul escorted Dorothy to her high school graduation dance and told her 
how beautiful she was. He boosted her self-esteem and bought her a pretty white dress and hired a professional photographer to take photos of her. He had visions of her being the next big poster pinup, like the infamous Farrah Fawcett swimsuit poster that sold six million copies in its first year. Paul knew Dorothy could be his ticket to a fortune. He heard Playboy was holding a contest to find a centerfold playmate for his 25th anniversary issue. Over a few weeks, he slowly talked her into posing nude, telling her what a big star she was going to be. He contacted Ken Honey, who had been successful in submitting photographs to Playboy, and asked him to take photos. But Ken initially refused because she was underage and needed parental consent. Dorothy confided in her mother and got her signature. The camera liked Dorothy. She had a sensual but naive quality about her. Ken submitted the photos to Playboy, and when the magazine editor saw them, he knew he had to get Dorothy on the next plane to Los Angeles. When she arrived, they took thousands of test shots. Her body was near perfect, and the shots turned out fabulous. Dorothy was now one of 16 women in the running to be the 25th anniversary playmate. Dorothy remained in L.A., and Paul was on the next flight to join her. She was his meal ticket, and he wasn't going to let her slip through his fingers. Paul proposed, and Dorothy agreed, but first they would move in together. Playboy had her blonde hair trimmed a little and shortened her last name to Stratton. Other than that, Dorothy remained true to herself. She briefly worked as a bunny at the Playboy Club in Century City. Still underage, her job was to greet customers at the door, dressed in the traditional bunny costume with a tight strapless corset, black nylons, black bow tie, bunny ears, and a fluffy white tail. Dorothy had impressed the Playboy photographers, so one of the executives called an agent about the possibility of her becoming an actress. Dorothy began modeling and working in films. In January 1979, Dorothy found out she wasn't chosen to be the anniversary centerfold. While physically she was perfect, they felt she wasn't ready yet for the attention it would bring. Instead, Dorothy was named Miss August 1979. While they waited for Dorothy's big break, Paul worked promoting male dancers and wet t-shirt contests. All the while, pressuring Dorothy to marry him, telling her that they had a lifetime bond. Dorothy's life was being catapulted into a career that she'd never dreamed of. She was whisked away to exclusive parties in Hollywood, and when she felt overwhelmed, her constant rock was Paul. 
But Playboy executives weren't impressed with Paul and his slimy businesses. He was invited to accompany Dorothy at events held at the Playboy Mansion. But after he got caught hooking up with other women in the grotto, he was escorted off the property. Hugh Hefner, the founder of Playboy, took a personal interest in Dorothy and connected her with a business manager who helped set up a company to protect her income and assets. She appeared in Playboy's Roller Disco and Pajama Party that aired on national television. That, in turn, not just small parts in TVs and movies. Friends of Dorothy told her Paul wasn't good for her and that he'd hold her career back. But Dorothy was loyal and she felt she couldn't abandon him. The couple were married on June 1st in Las Vegas. Back at their home in L.A., they'd taken on two roommates. Stephen was a friend of Dorothy's. The other was Patty, a teenager Paul had met at an auto show. Peter Bogdanovich, a filmmaker who hung out at the Playboy Mansion, spotted Dorothy and became smitten. He wrote a role specifically for her in an upcoming film starring Audrey Hepburn and John Ritter. Things moved quickly, and soon Peter was in love with Dorothy. The feeling was mutual. In December, Playboy selected Dorothy for Playmate of the Year for 1980. Being chosen came with $200,000, including $25,000 in cash, a Jaguar for coat and jewels. Paul could feel his grip on Dorothy slipping away. He suggested they proceed with his poster idea that he figured would make more profit of 300000 He hired photographers as she briefly entertained the thought. But when she saw the poster, she declined the deal. Looking for another meal ticket, he tried to repeat Dorothy's success with the roommate Patty. He groomed her like he had Dorothy. But when he approached Playboy with a potential playmate, they weren't interested. Dorothy was filming in New York, and Paul called her often. But since, she seemed distant. And when he told her that he loved her, she didn't say the words back. He kept calling, until eventually she stopped taking his calls. In April, Dorothy was working, promoting Playboy. During a short break in filming, she headed back to L.A. to make appearances and was a guest on the Johnny Carson show. Afterwards, she headed to Canada for a short tour, and Playboy requested that Paul not go with her and that their marriage be kept a secret. While she was in Toronto, Dorothy and Paul spoke on the phone, and she told him, she needed more freedom, but he wouldn't hear it. They agreed to meet when she landed in Vancouver, but the meeting blew up and all they did was argue. Dorothy returned to work. Back in New York, she discreetly left her hotel room and moved into Peter's suite. 
When filming was complete, she returned to L.A. and quietly moved into Peter's estate in Bel Air. She met with Paul and told him she wanted a divorce and that she wanted it to be amicable. So much so that she said she'd offer him a financial settlement. But Paul wasn't satisfied with that. He knew that he couldn't touch the assets in her private corporation. In June, Dorothy closed out their joint bank accounts, and a letter was delivered to Paul that officially stated they were separated. Their two years together was coming to an end. But Dorothy didn't cut him off completely. She arranged for a business manager to send him a little money. Desperation set in. While there were things Paul could have done, jobs he could have taken on, he wasn't interested in a few meager paychecks. Distraught, he came up with a plan to stop her from leaving. He borrowed a thirty-eight revolver from a friend, then parked outside Peter's house and waited. But before he could do anything, his friend asked for the gun back. Then in July, Paul hired a private investigator. He wanted proof of the affair so he could sue Peter. Meanwhile, Dorothy and Peter went on a trip to London, and Paul realized he didn't have the means for a lawsuit. Instead, he hoped he could win Dorothy back when she returned. Dorothy had a soft spot for Paul. She still felt somewhat connected to him and a sense of responsibility to see that he was financially taken care of. So she agreed to meet him for lunch on Friday, August 8th. Paul was ecstatic. Dorothy's friends, Peter and even Hugh Hefner, tried to dissuade her from meeting Paul alone. They told her to let the lawyers handle it. But Dorothy wanted to keep things friendly. Their lunch did not go as Paul had planned. Dorothy told him she was in love with Peter. After their lunch, they went to the house they once shared, and Dorothy removed her clothes from the closet. As she left, she promised she'd call him. On Sunday, Paul searched the classified ads and found a 12-gauge shotgun for sale. On Monday, Dorothy called Paul and agreed to meet him on Thursday to discuss a financial settlement. On Wednesday, Paul picked up the shotgun. On Thursday, Dorothy arrived at Paul's home around noon they spoke for a while in the living room. Paul handed her a letter asking for financial support. She tucked it into her purse. It's not known exactly what happened, but the couple retreated to their old bedroom downstairs. They undressed. Then Paul brought out the shotgun, pointed at her beautiful face, and pulled the trigger. Dorothy died at 20. Paul took some time, then placed the muzzle of the shotgun against his cheek 
and died by suicide. Her funeral was private and small, attended only by Dorothy's family, Peter, and a few friends. Her ashes were laid to rest at Westwood Memorial Park, the same cemetery in which Marilyn Monroe lies. In her hometown in Canada, Dorothy had made a presentation to the rock group PRISM. It was a bond that the band never forgot. After her death, they released a song in her honor, co-written by band member Lindsay Mitchell and fellow Canadian musician Brian Adams. The song was titled Cover Girl. The lyrics in part state, Cover Girl, you've come a long way. New Mercedes in the driveway. Oh, she's just a small town girl at heart. And that's how we remember Dorothy, a small town girl from Canada with a big heart and big dreams. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with Let's Talk and More True Crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of David King. Diana, a successful realtor, borrowed $400,000 so that she and her boyfriend David could renovate a house. But when she spent the money on herself, David found out and threatened to expose her. But he didn't live to see that happen. If you're dying to hear more, Past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Verbal Planet for use of their music sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.